Well, good evening. It's good to see all of you. If someone would grab our back door back there, we'll get started. Revelation, we're glad that you're here. It sure has been an interesting first three sessions. And uh, we are looking at session number four tonight. We'll be looking at the, uh, have to move pretty quickly, in fact, tonight. The last five of the seven churches of Revelation to whom the book was written. And so uh, we're glad that you're here. Good to see all of you. We always have a large number online every Wednesday night. Glad that you've joined us wherever you are and however you may be joining us literally from around the United States. And we're glad that you're here as well. Let's pray together and we'll jump right in tonight to Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Father, thank you tonight for the word that you've given to us. Your word is power, it is truth, it is life, and I pray that it will be everything and all of that and more to us tonight as we study Revelation. Five of the seven churches, Lord, to whom you sent this letter, I pray that you'd give us insight and wisdom. The Holy Spirit would be our teacher. And Father, throughout the weeks as we study Revelation, I pray that you would just help us to love you in the, in more and more in a greater way and give us insight and wisdom into all that will unfold uh, in the coming days. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. First of all, before we get started, I uh, want to remind you next Wednesday night, we will not be meeting. When, in fact, we're having no midweek activities next week uh, for spring break. A lot of people gone different places, and so there'll be no midweek activities. But two weeks from tonight, we start in Revelation chapter 4. So we'll wrap up the other five letters to the churches uh, tonight. And then two weeks from tonight, we're going to start getting into the visions. I think that's where you're really going to find a lot of interest there. But the very first vision, chapter 4, two weeks from tonight, uh, will be the vision as John looks into heaven, sees a door open, looks inside the door, and sees something fascinating. So that'll be two weeks from tonight. And so that we will be uh, uh, picking that up, uh, of course, after next Wednesday night. So as we begin Revelation tonight, remember now there was a a pattern all seven churches had. All seven letters began with a description of Jesus, um, and, and then the letter would have a, a commendation of the church, something that he says, you're doing well. And, and so Jesus would tell the church what they're doing good, and then he would have a rebuke what they're doing bad. Uh, and then number, uh, or next he would exhort them, uh, he'd give some type of exhortation, and then a promise. So every letter of all seven letters, there would be a commendation, something you're doing good, doing good, a rebuke, something you're doing bad, an exhort, here's what I'm encouraging you to do to get better, and then here's a promise I'm making to you as a church. So all seven were like that. Now, every letter begins with Jesus saying, I know your works. I know what's going on in your church. I talked about it last week. It should be rather humbling to us that Jesus knows every single thing going on in our church. All the bad attitudes you have, all the things you say that aren't nice, all the things that, that, that we do that we shouldn't do, all those things we should do we don't do, he knows every single thing going on in the church. Sometimes we act like he's not listening. He is. Uh, and so every church, he says, I know your works. I know what's going on. And then he always closes all seven letters by saying, he who has ears to hear, listen to what I'm telling you. So these letters to the churches we need to take seriously. Remember now, Revelation was not written to an individual. 
written to churches, seven of them. Not First Baptist Garland, but seven churches in Asia Minor, which is today Turkey. Asia Minor, of course, being province of the Roman Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, and so uh, in what is modern-day Turkey. So, uh, just a reminder then uh, that everyone, uh, every letter ends with the ears to hear, let them hear. Now, I forgot to give you your quiz tonight. Why didn't somebody say, we forgot our quiz tonight? So, uh, so remember now, we're kind of, kind of review at the, at the beginning of all the, uh, all the sessions, the Greek word for revelation is apocalypse, which means uh, to unveil. It means to unveil. It means something's been hidden and it is now uncovered. So apocalypse does not mean something cataclysmic ending or the world ending. It means something's hidden and it's revealed. And that's what Revelation is. It's a book that things have been hidden and now God has revealed them to us. So that's what apocalypse means. Something has been hidden and it's now revealed. So it was written by whom? John, where? Island of Patmos. What was the year? 90 A.D. It's good, good. Jesus was crucified 30 A.D. So we're about 60 years after Jesus has been crucified and resurrected. Around 90 A.D., Roman Empire was, of course, in charge. And, and their emperors demanded to be worshipped. And the worst one that persecuted the Christians whenever Revelation was written was who? Domitian, you're exactly right. So you're doing good, doing good. Um, so in every church, there were three problems. What were they? Persecution. Every one of them were persecuted for the faith. So whenever you see what word, you know it's referring to persecution. Beast. Anytime you see the beast, it's referring to persecution from the Roman Empire. So beast is rising out of the sea. It's the Roman Empire. So as we look further, you're going to see the beast a lot. You'll remember it's the persecution the church is receiving. That was one of the problems. What was the other problem? Culture, exactly right. Culture was influencing the church. What was the image for culture? The prostitute. Anytime you see the great prostitute, that is how the culture of the Roman Empire is impacting the church, infiltrating the church. Boy, that's something we have to watch today, isn't it? Making sure culture stays outside and doesn't get into who we are. What was the third problem? False teaching. So persecution, cultural influence, and false teaching. There were false teachers within every church. We're going to see one here in just a moment. And so what is the image for a false teacher? False prophet. So anytime you see the, the false, false prophets mentioned, it's referring to the false teachers in the churches. And then the last question, what's the difference between exegesis and eisegesis? Exegesis is, re, it, exegesis is taking what's in the passage and drawing out what's in there. Eisegesis is reading into a passage. And there are so many people that read into Revelation more than they should. They'll read it and say, oh, that's talking about this. And this is talking about, uh, uh, that, oh, that's Ukraine right there in Russia. And oh, this is China. No, you're reading into it. You're, you're eisegeting. And the proper way to interpret Revelation, really all of Scripture, to know what's there and apply it to our lives is by exegeting. Draw out what is in there. Don't read into what's not in there. And so, a lot of people do that. So, it's really important interpreting Revelation. You exegete. You don't 
eisegete. All right, let's look at uh, church number three. First church was Ephesus. You, you take the little boat from Patmos. You land on the island, uh, the uh, country of Turkey. Ephesus is the first city. It's the largest city. Quarter of a million people lived there in, in, uh, in, in John's day. Ephesus, and what was the main problem at Ephesus? Anybody remember? They had lost their first love. So he encouraged them to once again encourage their love for, for God again, for Jesus again. So you go up the coast now and you come to the town of Smyrna. What was the problem at Smyrna? You're all exactly right. None. There was no problem there. So one of the few churches that he said, I have nothing bad to say about you. Wouldn't you love to be a church that Jesus walked into, saw everything was going on and says, I have nothing bad to say about what you're doing. That's, the, that's our goal. That's the kind of church I want us to be. And so that was the church at Smyrna, but they were enduring persecution. And so whereas the first uh, 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 to, uh, to Ephesus was, you need to increase your love again, to Smyrna, it was hang on, hang on, persevere because you are, you're per, being persecuted, but I want you to know I'm with you. So that was the church of Smyrna. Now let's go to number three, which is letter A on your outline tonight, the letter to the church at Pergamum. Now, we're not going to have a lot of time, as I said, to go through all these in depth, so I want to give you just a little snippet of, of what the city was like at all five that are remaining because what Jesus said to the church had something to do with what was going on in the city, in their culture. So let's look at Pergamum. Go up the seacoast, another 55 miles from Smyrna. By the way, all these churches make a loop. Ephesus, and it goes all the way back to Laodicea. So it's a big loop there. So you go to the next up the seacoast, 55 miles from Smyrna, and you arrive at a little town called Pergamum. I say little, it was probably 100,000 people in that day. And, and it means citadel. It means a place, a city that is set on a hill. Modern city is Bergama of Turkey, about 60,000 population, known for growing cotton, known for uh, gold mines, known for the big wind turbines. They're generating wind energy over there uh, in Bergama. And uh, that's the modern city of what was then Pergamum. Now, Pergamum was known for three things back in biblical days. It was the center of, of many pagan religions and the worship of the emperor, Roman emperor. Number two, they had a large university with a large library, and so learning was really big to Pergamum. And number three, the production of parchments, writing instruments, very big there in Pergamum. But here's what was unique primarily about Pergamum. Pergamum was one of the few cities in all the Roman Empire that had the ability to execute capital punishment. You commit a crime in Pergamum, they could execute you. Hardly any other city in Roman Empire could do that. So they symbolize capital punishment with the symbol of a sword. So all around the city, you saw a sword, pictures of swords, which was a reminder, don't do anything here, we will execute you with the sword. So remember that now, 
whenever he writes to the, to the church at Pergamum, verse 12, chapter 3, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him, Jesus, who has the sharp two-edged sword. What was the symbol in Pergamum? The sword. So Jesus is saying, I'm writing to you, church, because I have the greater sword than your city does. I have the true sword. Remember there were two swords I talked about two weeks ago? One was a little dagger called a sakari that they would keep. It's what Peter probably had whenever he cut off Malchus' ear. You kept it concealed. It was real quick. You could pull it out. It was like, it was about like that. And you could, you, it was called a sword. But the second kind of different Greek word was used, which was the long sword used in battle to win battles, uh, and used in war. That was the long sword. Uh, and that was the word that Jesus used earlier, and that's the word he uses here. It's not the small sword, it's the large sword for battle. So, he's the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Probably referring to the emperor worship. Yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny the faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Let me stop for a moment. Pergamum was a place that God said, Satan lives. A city so wicked, he said the devil lives there. That has to be a pretty wicked city if God says the devil lives there. Who is Antipas? He refers to him, doesn't make a comment on him. Here's what we know from history. There was a dentist in Pergamum in just before John wrote, probably late 80s, before we got to 90 AD. He was a dentist, and he was accused by the city leaders who worshiped the emperor of being a Christian and using his dental practice as a cover for Christianity. So they accused him of... Yeah, you say you're a dentist, but you're really an underground operation following Christ, which was against what the Roman emperor said they could do. And so as a result, the townspeople, who they could execute capital punishment, they went in one day, dragged Antipas out of his dental practice. They had bulls sitting there that were bronze or brass bulls, very large ones that they would worship. They worshiped the cult uh, emperor, uh, emperors in the Roman cult as well. And they did it through big brass bulls that would be situated all across the city. So they put Antipas in one of these big copper bulls and they heated it up and they fried him to death. It's recorded in, in, in secular history books about an Antipas in the city of Pergamum. And then John refers to him, and now knowing that, listen again to what Jesus said, verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So John is referring back to how Antipas was killed there, in the city of Pergamum. 
But I have a few things against you, verse 14. Uh, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. You remember Balaam, the Old Testament book of Numbers, how he encouraged the Israelites to participate in pagan festivals. They were doing the same at Pergamum. Verse 15. So also you have some among you who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Do you remember last time who the Nicolaitans were? Probably followers of Nicholas of Antioch, referred to in Acts chapter 6 verse 5. But do you remember what they taught? They taught that your faith has nothing to do with your lifestyle. So you can, you can love the Lord, you can be a believer, a follower of Jesus, and you can be sexually immoral, you can worship the emperor, you can participate in the pagan festivals, you can... You can be sexually promiscuous. You do whatever you want because your lifestyle and your faith are separate. That's what the Nicolaitans taught. And Jesus said, I hate that teaching. It's false. There's some of you who believe that. And you hate it because you kicked them out of your church. And so I commend you for that. And there at Pergamum, they have once again the teaching of the Nicolaitans. He said, you hold, uh, you have some of you who hold of that teaching. Verse 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. What was the symbol of capital punishment all over Pergamum? Sword. So in every one of these cities, when you know the background of the city, the letters make, make much more sense. Verse 17, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. You remember in the Old Testament, they hid manna in the Ark of the Covenant uh, with the tablets and the budding of Aaron's rod. And so here he's referring to something greater than manna. Jews believe that heaven held, held manna, that there's manna in heaven. And so he says here, if you don't, if you don't, Give in to the false worship. If you stay true to me, you'll have some of the hidden manna from heaven. And I will give him a white stone. Back in the emperor days, uh, the days of the emperor games, they had what were called the Olympics. If you won first place, many times, rather than like a gold medal, they either gave you a wreath or they gave you a white stone with the emperor's name on it and your name on the other side. And so he says... If you, if, if you please me, who's greater than the emperor, you'll have the hidden manna in heaven and the white stone, the victor's crown, with a new name written on it. Not the name of the emperor, but the name of Jesus. So you see the imagery all the way through. What's going on in Pergamum, he's relating it to the church. Let's move on. Letter uh, B on your outline, the church in Thyatira. Verses 18 to 29. Go 38 miles on, then from Pergamum you come to Thyatira. The name Thyatira is kind of an odd name, but it means in Arabic, it means daughter. King Seleucus uh, conquered the city in 290 B.C. and named the city Daughter because his daughter was born there the same year that he conquered the city. So he named the city Daughter, which is Thyatira. It's the modern city in Turkey of uh, Akhixar, A-K-H-I-S-A-R, about 100,000 
people today. They grow a lot of uh, tobacco, a lot of olive oil, produce olive oil. What's interesting about at Hexar is they hold the World Chess Championships there from time to time. A couple of years ago, they held it there, city of about 100,000 population there in Turkey. Back in biblical days, though, Thyatira was the place, a major cult of Apollo, who was the son of Zeus. So there was a large um, a cult of Apollo there. But here's what they were known for primarily, and you're going to see that in what Jesus said to the church at Thyatira. They were famous for trade guilds, uh, primarily Copper Guild and the Dye Guild. But most of the people worked in one of these copper industries or dyeing garments, uh, industries that dyed garments, the indigo trade. And, and you had to join a guild, which was like a labor union, in order to work. The Christians had a problem with joining the guilds or the labor unions because once you joined the labor unions, you were expected to worship either the emperor or Apollo, the son of Zeus. And they had these wild sexual orgies that you were expected to participate in if you were a member of one of the guilds. Well, the believers at Thyatira obviously had a problem with that. But there was a lady in the church at Thyatira who had a lot of influence. And she taught, you can still be a part of one of the guilds and do all the things they do, worship Apollo, worship the emperor, and participate in these orgies and still be a good Christian. Who else taught that? Nicolaitans. And she taught that. So, with that in mind, listen to what he says to the church at Thyatira. Verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Pretty impressive. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So in other words, they're getting stronger in their faith and their works. But verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Boy, he came pretty strong against that lady in the church, didn't he? Was her name really Jezebel? Oh, probably not. You remember Jezebel from the Old Testament? Anybody who's an old Jezebel, that's just an old, that's just an old woman who's, uh, who's hard and immoral and, 
And, and evidently he was probably calling her old Jezebel, but her name probably wasn't Jezebel. But he told her, I gave you time to repent of what you're teaching my church. You didn't. You kept up the sexual immorality. Because of that, I'm going to cause you to get sick and go on the sick bed where you can't go to church and teach that doctrine. Does God do things like that? Does he make people sick so they can't come and impact his church in the wrong way? He did here. And then I'm going to strike her children dead. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? But then notice what he said after that. I'm the one, the churches will know, after I deal with Jezebel, all churches will know, I'm the one who searches the mind and the heart. Wait a minute. Faith and actions, mind and heart. So they do have a connection, don't they? So, so your faith should impact the way you live, shouldn't it? So you can't say, well, my faith is one area of my life and I can live my life like I want to because my morality has nothing to do with my faith or what I believe politically has nothing to do with my faith. Oh, yes, it does. Be careful segmenting and compartmentalizing your spiritual lives. They're one and the same. And that's what Jesus was telling the churches. Then verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold with her teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. So in other words, if you don't follow this lady Jezebel in her teaching, then I lay no other burden on you. Hold fast to what you have until I come. Verse 26, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. We'll talk more about that a little bit later, about what it means, the vision of the nations. We'll talk about that and how that relates to our day today. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And then verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. Who's the morning star? Jesus. Other references in the Bible, several other places. He is called the morning star. What was the morning star? Well, the Romans saw it every night. Probably Venus is what a lot of astrologers say. But every night, just before dawn, just before the dawning of a new day, a bright star would appear in the sky. And they called it the morning star because it was just about morning. And they saw it every morning. And the Romans saw this bright star and they saw it as a symbol of victory. So all the Roman Empire knew very well the victory that came, the dawning of a new day, when the morning star appeared. So that's why later on, Jesus is referred to as the morning star because the Roman Empire would have known exactly what, they're ta- what he was talking about. All the believers in the churches would know exactly what he's talking about. Oh yeah, that's that bright star that appears every morning. And Jesus said, I'm the bright star because 
the dawning of a new day has come. The morning star has appeared to you, which symbolizes victory, remember? It's a new day dawning, victory's coming from the morning star is Christ. So he uses what they already knew and symbolizes himself. And we'll talk later about, he'll talk about the morning star is going to come and to appear. So verse 28, I will give him the morning star. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, let's move on quickly. Let's go to the Sardis, uh, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Go 33 miles, let her see on your outline. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, 33 miles southeast now of Thyatira. And you come to a city called Sardis. It's still there today, by the way. It's known as Sart today, S-A-R-T. Sart, Turkey, known for gold coins. It's known as Sardis then. And as you approached it, you saw Sardis sitting on a hill. And it looked so majestic. Sardis was a beautiful city. In fact, there was a belief for a long time that it sat on a hill and invading armies would have to march up the hill. Whoever occupied the city would have enough time to see the armies coming and you could defeat them. You had the advantage being on the hill. The ones coming up the hill had a disadvantage. So they believed it was the city that could never be taken, never be conquered. And for years they thought that. Until Cyrus of Persia conquered it. And then later Antiochus, the Romans conquered it. But that's the only twice it's ever been conquered. It's famous for jewelry and dyeing garments and textiles and, of course, the military. Strong military there. And they worshipped nature and they worshipped a goddess by the name of Cybele, Sybil, as we would know which was a goddess of nature. They also had a fascination with death. They had a necropolis about seven miles south of the city. Had a fascination with death as well. So listen to what Jesus said to the believers there in the church at Sardis. Verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. What do they have a fascination with there? Death. You're a dead church. Oh, you have the reputation of being alive. Everybody says, oh, that's an alive church. And evidently, all seven of these churches knew about one another because there were reputations each of them had among the other six churches. And Sardis had the reputation among all the other six of being an alive church that's doing well. That was the reputation. But Jesus said, I'm actually in the church. You're as dead as a doornail. You know, First Baptist Garland has a reputation we have across the state of Texas, the Baptist Convention of Texas, as being one of the stronger churches in our state. I hope we're not Sardis. I hope we never will reach a point where, where the rest of the state says, Oh, First Baptist Garland, oh yeah, well, that's a strong church, always has been. But yet Jesus walks among us going, You're dead as can be. I hope he never, 
I hope he never has to say that to us. Verse 2, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. So they had areas of the church were barely hanging on. And he says, wake up and strengthen what's about to die. For I have not found your works complete in my sight, in the sight of God. Verse 3, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you'll not wake up, I'll come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Hold on for a second now. Go back just for a moment to Jesus' teaching on at the Olivet Discourse. What did he tell the disciples about the second coming? Stay awake. Said it three times. Stay awake. Because I'm going to be coming like a thief. Be awake. So what do you tell them? Wake up. Stay awake. If you don't, I'm coming like a thief. And you don't know what hour it's going to be. He told Sardis the exact same thing he told the disciples. Matthew chapter 24. Verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. Now, soiling their garments was not what you think. Let me explain. And they will walk worthy with me in white, for they're worthy. Verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Now, let's hold on there for a second. Back in Sardis, what does he mean by white garments? Back in Sardis, they would, a couple of days a year, they, nobody went to work. It was, an, it was a citywide holiday. And every, uh, every citizen of Sardis would don a white toga. And they would walk around, everybody in white togas, symbolizing the sincerity and the purity of their worship of nature and Cybele, the goddess. And so everybody really looked forward to these days where you could don the white toga, walk around in the white garments. And Jesus used that analogy to say, if you'll stay faithful to me, you're the one that will get the white garment in heaven. So it was a reference of what they knew there in Sardis. But now hold on a second. He told them in verse 5, if, you, if, you do not, if, you, if you're faithful, I'll give you a white garment. But notice the next phrase. And I will never blot your name out of the book of life. Well, wait a second. That sounds like you can lose your salvation, doesn't it? Does God have a big book in heaven with your name in it when you're saved? And if you're not faithful to him, does he get his eraser and erase it and blot it out? That's what I was always taught. As a boy growing up in church, that's what I was taught. You better be faithful or God will blot your name out of the book of life. You were taught the same thing. I know you were. So is he saying that? No. Let me explain. Every city or ancient Roman Empire, including Sardis, had a census of who lived there. And whenever you died, they blotted out your name. Or if you brought shame to the city, 
They blotted out your name. You were no longer a citizen of their town. They were ashamed of you if you brought shame or if you died. Think about it. God does not have such a bad memory that he needs a book in heaven to tell who the believers are. Right? So why does he need a book up there that tells him who's saved and who's not? I've always heard, yeah, he gets the book out and goes to him. Let's see, let's see if I can find your name here. Nope, don't find your name. Why does he need a book? He's sovereign. He knows everything. It was a reference to the citizens and, and the books they had back in those days, and they would blot their names out. So a reference here is not to losing your salvation. It was a reference to death and judgment. So he says, I will never blot out his name of the book of life. You'll, you'll, have, you'll have eternal life. You're never going to have eternal death. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. The name also could mean who you are, but also could mean your reputation back in those days. And the wording shows, backs that up as well. So he's saying you're using an analogy that they would know about the names on city registers. That whenever you died, it was blotted out, or you brought shame, it was blotted out. It wasn't a reference to losing your salvation. It was a reference to you would never have death. And if, you, if you're faithful at Sardis, you're going to a city where your name's taken, never taken off the city registry, and where you will never bring shame. And I will confess your name before the Father. Let's keep going. Let's go to Philadelphia. We have about eight minutes. Philadelphia and Laodicea, the last two churches. Letter D on your outline, verses 7 through 13. Let me tell you about Philadelphia. Go 30 miles more to the southeast of Sardis, and you come to another imposing town on a hill called Philadelphia. It was called that because it was founded in 138 B.C. by King Attalus, who had a special love for his brother Eumenes. He loved him so much, he named the city after him, Brotherly Love which we, of course, you know Philadelphia today. Produced a lot of wine there, but what Philadelphia was mainly known for, and still is today, Alishire, Turkey is the city today of about 50,000 population. They're known for it today, and Philadelphia was known for it in the Bible, and that is earthquakes. Tremendous earthquakes. They had them constantly. So an earthquake would come, would destroy the city, they'd rebuild another earthquake, destroy the city, rebuild another earthquake, and it's happened over and over throughout history, and it's still happening. Alashir, Turkey is continually hit today by earthquakes. They had the last big one in 1969, and they're due another one any time, they say. So they were known for the earthquakes. So listen to what he says here in verse 7 to the church's and to the church at Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one's able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and you've kept my word and have not denied my name. What did he mean by little power? They were a really small church. There weren't many Christians in Philadelphia. I mean, there were just a handful. But he says, you're small in number, but I have nothing bad to say about you. 
the, the only, one of the only churches he had nothing bad to say. Smyrna and Philadelphia, he had nothing bad to say. Verse 8, or rather verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, probably a reference to emperor worship, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. The believers who were, who were some were, were Jews, some were believers, uh, and, and, but they both sometimes gave the church of Philadelphia a hard time, and they worshiped the emperor themselves. Say that they're Jews, but they're not. They're lying. I'll make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. We'll talk more about that a little bit later coming up. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Let me explain that for a moment. No, we don't have much time. Let me explain it. Back at Philadelphia, in the column, they had large columns in these temples to foreign gods and to the emperor's wealth. And they many times, as they would come and worship, they would inscribe their name on the pillars that they had been there to worship that god. Sometimes they would inscribe their name. Sometimes when a, when a king would come in and conquer the city, he would put his name at the top because he was the conquering name over that city. And so it was very common to have names on pillars and to see those all around the city. So Jesus said, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. If you overcome Philadelphia, I will write your name on the holy temple. Never shall he go out or in, and I will write him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. I'll talk about that later on. There's a lot of symbolism. People read into the phrase, my own new name there. I'll talk more about that when we get into one of the visions later on. But so many people are misinterpreting what Jesus said there about the new name. But all of that imagery, powerful imagery of saying you're walking all around the city, seeing all the names on the pillars to the, all of these gods that are being worshipped. You stay faithful to me and I will write my, your name and the name of my God and my name all together on the temple of my God in heaven. Let's go to Laodicea. We'll wrap up. We just have a few minutes. Verse, the last one, letter E, church in Laodicea, the last one, verses 14 to 21. Laodicea, let me tell you a little bit about the city because the letter will make a lot more sense. Forty more miles southeast of Philadelphia, we've made a complete loop now. We're due east of Ephesus, where we started. Laodicea was known for one thing, money. They were rich, very wealthy city. The banking center of the Roman Empire, Laodicea. Known for money, banking, but they're also known for medical facilities. They had, people came from all over because they had salve that they put on their eyes. And hearing, you came there for, to, for your, your hearing and for your eyesight. And, and it was a strong medical center and health care. And they also produced these black wool garments. They're very expensive and sold in Rome. In fact, Aristotle wrote about them. They were called the trimatas. Known for those black garments as well. But primarily, very much 
wealth and health in Laodicea. They also would have devastating earthquakes, but they had so much money they could rebuild lavishly, and they did that time and time again. Today, it's the modern city of Eskihazar, only 5,000 population. The city's almost dried up now, but it was very prominent back in biblical days. So listen to what he said at Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Talking about losing your salvation? No. Let me explain. Laodicea sits here. Six miles north is Hierapolis. Hierapolis is known for hot springs. Very, you'd go there, you'd uh, therapeutic, you'd set the hot springs. It was good for your joints and your muscles. Hot springs, and over to the east was Colossae, which the book of Colossians came from. They were known for very much cold water, mountain runoff water, high mountains, and the water would run, very cold water. So very hot water in Hierapolis, very cold water over here in Colossae, and Laodicea set right between the two of them. Laodicea got its water supply from Hierapolis, the hot springs. So there was a six-mile aqueduct of hot springs that would flow down. And so whenever the water finally got to Laodicea, the town's water was not hot anymore. It had cooled. And now it was lukewarm. It was tepid. And it was disgusting. You couldn't drink it. You spit it. You take a drink. Put it, spit it out. You didn't, couldn't drink it. It was disgusting. So he uses that image to talk about the church. He said, you're not Hierapolis, you're not Colossae, you're not hot for me, you're not cold for me. Somewhere in between, and you're disgusting to taste. And so I'll spit you out of my... We're not talking about losing salvation, it's talking about being disgusting to the Lord. Because they did that often. Drink the water, spit it out. And he uses the same image because it's what they knew. Verse 17, for you say, I'm rich. They were. I've prospered. They did. I don't need anything. But you don't realize you're wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. Why the blind? Remember the health care? It came there for eyes. I counsel you, verse 18, to buy from me. They, don't, they didn't buy from anybody. They were wealthy. But I'm counseling you, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. White garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. They, had, they took aluminum and zinc. Still have a lot of aluminum and zinc in that area, by the way, today. They would take aluminum and zinc and, and crush it into a powder. It was known as the Phrygian powder. Aristotle, Aristotle wrote about it as well. In Laodicea, they had what was known as the Phrygian powder. It was, the region was called Phrygia. It was a powder for zinc and aluminum. They would make it and, and they would sell it all over the empire. People would take that powder, mix it with water, and they put a salve on their eyes and they could see better. 
It helped their eyesight. And so they sold it everywhere. They were known for that eye salve. So listen to what he says. I counsel you to get some salve to anoint your eyes because you can't see. The church there, you're so dead, you don't even see straight. You don't see right. Verse 20, behold, or rather verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be zealous and repent. In verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. How many of you have heard that verse concerning salvation? I have too. It's what I've talked my whole life. It's not talking about individual salvation. It's talking to the church. He's knocking outside the church door, wanting in. It wouldn't let him in. Imagine a church not letting Jesus in. He wasn't writing to individuals about being saved. He was writing to the church about get, get, he, they wouldn't let him in. Verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. So I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. One more note. You remember what else Laodicea was known for? The wealth, the eye salve, and the hearing. They also put the powder on their ears that they felt increased their hearing. And he closed by saying like he did to all the churches, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what I say. So Jesus would take what was common in the cities because it had infiltrated the church. And he wanted to reform his church so they wouldn't be like culture. They would be like the, the new Jerusalem, the new city. So keep your eyes there and not out here. And that's good advice for us, isn't it? All right, uh, we ran a little long. Sorry I went fast through all these. We had to get through them quickly. Two weeks from tonight, we'll talk about the throne that he sees in heaven. Chapter 4, the visions begin. And so I think that you'll find that to be interesting as well. We don't have time tonight for questions or comments. If you have any questions or comments, please email me, fbcgarland.org. Love to hear from you. Sorry tonight, though, we have, to, we have to close. Let some of you get to choir or pick up your children. We'll pray and we'll dismiss. Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity to study your word. May we always be a church, Lord, that does not look to culture to be our example, but we look to the new Jerusalem where Jesus is Lord to be our example. May that always be the case at First Baptist Garland. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a good rest of the week.